Well, this is going to be my last message on a series that I didn't plan to start, but it kind of started impromptu on June the 2nd, and uh, I decided to entitle this series An Awakening in the American Church. So this is lesson number 10. We've covered the expanse of the summer with this, uh, with this series, and uh, so this is going to be the last lesson on that. How many know we're in an important time of preparation right now? So, so people don't realize what's happening. Often, often, I don't know, some people just seem to just simply look, look, at, the, look, look at the road right, right in front of you and don't look ahead. And, and my encouragement is don't just look at the pavement in front of you. Look way ahead and see what's coming so you can get ready. You know, I, uh, I, I, I cycle on the Noose River Trail. And uh, when I do that, I'm going kind of fast on my bicycle. And, uh, and so I never, I never just kind of pigeonhole and look right in front of me. Because uh, I've had a number of occasions that people with their mobile phones are riding their bicycles and they're just about to hit me. And I keep saying, hello, hello. And they're oblivious to me because they're looking right here. Huh? And finally I holler at them real loud. Stop! But I'm always looking ahead. So in life, if you're always looking ahead, how many know you're going to be ready for what is coming, right? And so that's really, really, really important. Our current generation, for some reason, we're not looking very far ahead. We're just looking kind of right, right here at what's, what's obvious and, and what's easy. But we, this is a time for preparation. It's a time for consecration to God. Um, if you have plans on doing anything for Jesus before he comes back, how about now is the time to get ready to do that? It's not a time to play with the flesh. It's not a time to let your flesh have a fling. It's not a time to think you can get by with anything because this is the time of exposure. In fact, Hebrews 12 says there's coming a time that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So that which remains cannot be shaken. And that's the kingdom of God. So uh, I think we could be living in that time. What do you think? So, you know, it's just an unusual time, particularly in America. We're in a moral free fall. I've talked about that over, the, over this past summer. If you haven't been to these, and we, all of this stuff is on our website. We're just talking about the real moral freefall that we're in. And it's really not a time to keep your mouth shut and be a politically correct Christian. Now's the time to say what you believe. Because we have free speech rights here still. How many hear me? But you know, if we don't speak up, we could easily lose them. How many know that? And then it could cost us a lot to walk with God. So anyway, I want to say also the most important commodity that you could own in the future is not stocks in this or that or not in silver, gold, or properties. The pro- I'd say the most important commodity you could own in the future is faith. Because faith will take you where nothing else can. And faith can help you overcome things that no money can buy. How many hear me? So uh, we've been addressing all of these things this past summer. Last two uh, Sundays that I've ministered, and again, thank you, Joshua, for ministering last Sunday. The last two Sundays I ministered, started talking about the answers to the problems that we have and talked about a subject that is not mentioned a lot uh, in the church world today. For some unusual reason, it's extremely important. In fact, Hebrews 6 says it's one of the foundational topics of faith, and it's the subject of uh, repentance, Repentance from dead works. Repentance opens a door between us and God. And repentance, and the thing that's really cool about repentance is regardless of where you've been, what you've been involved in, and how surreal you've been as a human being, you can change. And repentance says, you know what? I've been going here, but I'm getting on a new road, and I'm going to change. And repentance enables change. Two things on the coin of repentance. The first part of repentance is we turn away. We see who we are, where we've been, what we've been doing, and make a decision. I'm turning away from it. 
Repentance is a heart thing that, you know what, I'm just, I'm fed up with me. I'm fed up with the way I've been living. I own what I've done. And you know what, I'm changing. And the second, the other side of the corner of repentance is faith towards God. And that is, you know what, Father, if your word is true, and it obviously is, it's been around for generations, I'm going to do what you said and you're going to bring me out of this. So it's walking by faith and believing what God said about your life. How many hear me? So repentance sets the stage for new life. So here's some signs. So here's some signs that you may need to repent. I've got eight things listed here that I could probably list a whole lot more. Here are some signs of a person that needs to repent. Uh, number one, lack of joy. How many know joy is a part of the salvation experience? Uh, in fact, Isaiah said, therefore, with joy will we draw waters out of the wells of salvation. Joy is a part of your life as a believer. Lack of personal peace. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. There is no peace, Isaiah said. There is no peace, says God, to the wicked. But you know what? When you lose your peace, you know something's going to rise in your life with God. So lack of personal peace. Number three, uh, lukewarm attitude towards spiritual things. How many know we need to be hot for God? I mean, we need to be stirred up, boiling hot, I say. Number four, living with known sin in your life with no plans to change it. How many know that's a big problem? And it'll sap your peace, it'll sap your joy, and uh, it'll cause you to be lukewarm. Number five, no concern for those without Christ. There's a whole world around us, and the only hope that I can see today is hope in the Lord Jesus and the change that he brings in life. And the future he's planned for us, the future of salvation here, and also the future of heaven. How many are excited about going to heaven? generations ago for generations and generations believers sang songs about heaven because life was so challenging and difficult just to draw the water from the wet river just to light a fire in the morning to heat yourself up just to cook your food find your food now life is so easy we've forgotten there is a place called heaven man it's nothing like where where you are right now and the house prepared for you there ain't nothing like what you're living in now my friend so anyway uh, number six, a short temper on the edge and hard to live with. That's a sign of a need to repent. The psychologists call that cognitive dissonance, by the way. That just simply means there's something on the inside that ain't jiving with what you're doing and your conscience is bothering you all the time. How many get what I'm saying? Number seven, a sense of emptiness. You know, uh, this, this current generation, they're trying to do things to fill up a void on the inside. All kinds of things that I'm not even going to detail because it's a sense of emptiness. Lastly, number eight, a callous general attitude towards others. Jesus said, in fact, in Matthew 24, one of the signs of his soon return is that uh, believers would be loveless, a lack of love for their fellow man. And uh, in Genesis 24, verse 12, so a callous general attitude. So today, I want to take a little detour and talk about repentance on a different level and just kind of tell a story and they go through some things. One of the heroes I have in the Bible is uh, King David. And uh, in fact, uh, I don't know, I was, before I came here, I was in a church service uh, and it really impacted my life. We had a guy who had a prophetic kind of a ministry and he didn't know me from Adam's house cat. And I was a young man, I don't know, I was 33, 34, I still had hair, I remember that. But um, all our kids were young, and you know, I was just uh, eking along in life and obeying God. And, and he come up to me, publicly in front of everybody, and you know what he said to me? And it, I never forgot, he said, he said, you know, you've got a heart like David's heart. I said, well, I just broke down and started crying. Because how many know David had a heart after God? And now he's one of my heroes in the Bible, but you know what, he also sinned. 
And he sinned so badly that a prophet had to rebuke him. I'm going to tell the story. And then today I want to go through... um, I want to go through Psalm 51 over the years. Psalm 51 is, uh, I've taken so many people, I've taken myself through Psalm 51. When I feel like I missed the mark and do something I shouldn't have done, nothing, nothing as extreme as what David did. But you know, Psalm 51 is a wonderful, wonderful prayer of repentance that David had to pray. David uh, had a wonderful life in God. David's life came in view in the scriptures. He was a he was a 16, 17-year-old boy, red hair, freckle face. Perhaps some people say, I don't know, we'll find it when we get to heaven, perhaps. But, uh, but uh, you know, um, <clears throat> they were looking for somebody that could, uh, they were looking for somebody that could, could help uh, slay this big guy that was uh, against Israel. And he slew this giant named Goliath. I remember the story. Later on, a prophet picked him out from among his brothers and he was the only one that was, in the, that was uh, out in the fields tending sheep and anointed him to be king over Israel. David eventually became king of Israel. And so here he is right in the middle of his kingship. Uh, David was a tremendous warrior. David was a tremendous leader. He knew how to rally people to his cause. And so he was a great leader of the people of Israel during his kingship. And then 2 Samuel 11 comes along, and and David had been in so many battles. He was battle-weary, perhaps. Uh, The uh, Israelites were fighting the Ammonites, and they were actually sieging a city. Cities had walls, so the Israelites just surrounded the city. To siege a city, sometimes it took several years. So, you know, the Scriptures seem to indicate, if you do some background, that maybe the troops have been there for a long duration. They surrounded the walls of this city. Uh, one of the cities of the Ammonites, and uh, they were they were hopefully winning the battle. And so David was at his uh, was was uh, in his palace, and he was resting. I've been in the Middle East a number of times, and uh, in fact, the parts of Africa I've been to is the same way. In Middle East, the, the they're flat topped houses. Many of you that travel know that, and uh, there's not a, air, a lot of air conditioning around. So if there's an arid, <clears throat> cool night or something, people go on the top of their houses. And they'll rest because it's cooler there than inside the dwelling. And I have, I've had many times that I've seen houses with people standing on the rooftops. I've, I've seen people across the way, they're washing clothes. I've never seen anybody clo- wash themselves, thankfully. But uh, anyway, washing clothes, brushing their teeth, or just kind of hanging out, just looking around, you know, sitting around in chairs and such. But that's very common in the Middle East and some of the African nations. And uh, so David one afternoon got up from a nap. And uh, he, was, he was king. He took an afternoon nap, a siesta perhaps, and, and got up. And, uh, you know, he got up on his rooftop, probably a little bit warm. So he said, well, I'll go up where some air is blowing. And he went up on his roof and just started looking around. He was one of the tallest roofs in the city. And he looked around the city of Jerusalem. And as he looked around, he, he noticed over here, by the way, here's a, here's a rooftop with a real pretty woman. And the problem with that pretty woman is she was, uh, she was naked and she was bathing. And the Bible says she was unusually beautiful, so he unusually looked. And he brought her to his palace. He found out who she was. Obviously, she had a name in the, in the city. She was known as Uriah the Hittite's um, wife, and he was in battle. And everybody knew who she was. She was probably a head turner for the men, to be real with you. And so he said, well, bring her over. Let me have a cup of tea with her. So they brought her over. And uh, he ended up going to bed with her and sleeping with another man's wife. How many know the Bible calls that adultery? How many know adultery will get you in a lot of trouble? In fact, I encourage men, go read Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, and Proverbs 7, because it has to do with a loose woman. 
and what you should and shouldn't do and how, what, what hell it will bring to your life if you choose to sin with a loose woman. Well, he did that. He went to bed with her. And, uh, and, and sometime later, and obviously a period of time went by, she came back to him and sent word back to King David and said, David, uh, it's kind of a problem, you know, uh, you, you brought me to your palace and, you know, we, um, we did what we did, but I'm pregnant. And you know what David thought? Oh boy, I've messed up. Ah, oh, but I got a solution. I know exactly what I'll do. And he, so he, uh, he got a message to Joab and when, in fact, he called uh, for her, for Uriah the Hittite to come, said, uh, I want you to, Joab, I want you to have uh, Uriah to come in from battle and uh, just want to see how, how he's doing. So he brought him into his palace and said, Uriah, how you doing? No, you've been having a really hard time. Y'all been out there a long time. You know, you've been sweating. I appreciate what you do for the kingdom of Israel. You're a, you're a great warrior. Appreciate you so much. Just want you to get some rest and respite from the toils of battle here. Have a little king food here. And then I want you to go home and just, you know, have a night with your wife and you know just kind of relax a little bit and you know what Uriah said I'll never do that yeah I'll eat your food but I won't be doing that uh, my, my men are out there in the field now, isn't that a good leader a good leader gets down into the trenches with his people and he said my, my men are out there sweating and uh, you know they're sleeping on the ground and they're in harm's way all the time 24 7 and you think I'm gonna go home and sleep with my wife won't be happening king I'm sorry I can't do that I will I will defy that command and and so the king thought well go ahead and go I, I'll encourage you to go do it so he ended up sleeping in the at the gate of the king's palace on the dirt with it with the with the guards he got up the next morning David said well did you enjoy your wife he said I never saw my wife I stayed right here at the gate of your palace with your guards they guarded your palace for you as king king talked to him again said well you know you know, take another night. You know, you really need to rest. Uh, you've, been, you've been working a long time. And Uriah said, well, thank you, king. But he never went to see his wife. In fact, it was so, David was so upset about him not going home to be with his wife because she was pregnant that he said, I'll tell you what, king, come and eat with me. And he got him drunk. Now, how many know that's pretty low? David got the man drunk, said, when I go sleep with your wife, he's still in a drunken stupor, never went to his wife. Stayed at the king's palace, stayed at the king's gate, slept right there because he was a man of honor. Uriah the Hittite went back out in battle and uh, David said man what am I going to do maybe he had talking talked to Bathsheba a little bit she said well I'm pregnant I'm getting big here we go I mean what are we going to do I hadn't seen Uriah for a long time David said I got a plan don't worry about it go home just go home everything's okay and David uh, uh, contacted his general Joab he said Joab I got, uh, here's something I want you to do. I know we're, we're surrounding that city. I want you to make sure your men get up near the city walls. And they knew not to fight near city walls because the, the, the people with bow and arrows could pick, pick the soldiers off. Or they had one guy one time that uh, a lady picked up a big stone and threw it on one of the soldiers, a Hithophel, and killed him. And they knew all that, so they understood. And he said, no, make sure you get up near the walls. And you make sure you're out of the Hittites there. And you make sure that he's in the heat of the battle, the worst part of the battle, where all of the arrows are flying. And you make sure he's, he dies. And Joab said, got it. at your command, sir. And that's exactly what he did. Uriah the Hittite died. And when Uriah the Hittite died, uh, Bathsheba found out about it, mourned for a few days. It was sad. They buried him. And then he brought Bathsheba into his harem. And she became one of his wives. How many know it's wrong to have more than one wife? Now, you know, you read all that through all the Old Testament. Uh, polygamy was rampant. It still wasn't good. It caused every family that got involved in it huge problems because it caused bitter jealousy. And I don't even go into, need to go into detail on that. How many hear me? It was terrible. But that's what he did. And so uh, as time went on, the baby was born. 
And uh, the little baby was born, and, uh, and uh, David thought everything was fine. Months went by, you know, nine months gestation, baby's born, we're all good. So some time had gone by. They're probably still in battle. Uriah's dead, Bathsheba's in his hair, everything's fine. How many know that if you cover your sin, you can never prosper? That's what the scripture says. And so David, uh, David thought everything was fine, and that's what we need to know. We may think we can sin without repercussions, but how many know your sin will always find you out? And that's why you don't cover things up. You, you expose it and be honest with God, and, you, and, and things will be okay. Well, because David chose the other route, that is, of hiding what he had done. Nathan, the prophet, came to him and said, David, let's have a cup of tea this afternoon. I got, can we talk? He said, yeah, come on. Come on, Nathan, I appreciate you being a prophet in Israel. Let's chat. And so they sat down and began to talk, and Nathan said, uh, hey, David. And David talked to him about the battle probably and how things were going in Israel. And, and Nathan sitting there nodding his head, yeah, that's good, that's good. He said, and then Nathan, after a little while, you know, he just kind of set him up, made him feel comfortable. And said, Nathan, uh, he said, uh, King David, I got a little story. I got a little story I heard. you like to hear my story? And David said, I'd love to hear your story, Nathan. You're such a wonderful prophet. You're a wonderful man of God. And Nathan said, well, you know, there, was a, there were two men. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep. And he had a lot of servants and a lot of stuff. But this poor man, he didn't have much. He had one little sheep that he bought for his family. And that sheep was so special to him that he ate out of his own plate. And that sheep uh, drank out of his own cup. And even his children played with that one little sheep that this man had. And he would shear that sheep on occasion. He'd, the sheep provided clothes for his family. So that sheep was well loved by this poor man's family. Well, as time went by, uh, the, uh, the rich man had a, had a guest that came to his house. And he wanted to make him a special meal. So instead of going to the hundreds of sheep that he had, he took the sheep out of the hands of the poor man. The one sheep that he had, endeared to his children, loved by the man, took him and killed him and fed him to his guest. And Nathan said, David, what do you think about that? And David said, I'll tell you what, that's a surreal character. If I knew anybody like that, he should die. He should, he should just flat die. Then he said, well, you know what? He should at least four, pay, pay four times. He should give that man four sheep for that one. Then Nathan stood up and he pointed his bony finger at David and said, you the man, David. God's given you everything you've ever asked for. God's been gracious in your life. God's provided you his power to kill Goliath. God anointed you as king of Israel under Samuel's ministry. You've been at battle after battle. You could have been killed and God has spared you from the arrows of the enemy. You've been sleeping in caves and God took care of you. God's been with you all of your life and you took another man's wife and you had all of Israel at your disposal. Not only that, but you had, once you took the man's wife, you got her pregnant, and then you had her husband killed. You're the man, David. You're the man that stole the other man's sheep. You're, you're, you're the wealthy man that stole somebody else's sheep. Because you've done this in private, it's going to be exposed to all Israel, and the sword will never leave your house so, here, you know, it's a big lesson. Uh, in fact, I encourage you to go back and read 2 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 12. Here's the issue. Wherever you are in life, maybe you're good at what you're doing. None of us are, are, are over being vulnerable to sin and falling and failing. How many hear me? Not, not one of us. And, and King David's lesson is a great lesson. 
He had lots of successes. Often your biggest failures are after your big successes. How many hear that? If you get lax and slack, how many know you can miss God? Huh? David, that was a terrible lesson that David learned. And then some people think, well, you know, well, you know, I can sin with immunity. I can do what is wrong. And nobody, as long as nobody knows what I'm doing, I'm okay. That's not what the scripture says. No, 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 it, it, it'll, it'll eventually be exposed and it can, and when it's exposed, it'll cost you and it can cost you a lot. And the issue with David is not the fact that God didn't forgive him. In fact, God forgave him so much that in Acts 13, David was called a man after God's own heart. But the issue with David was, the issue with David was, is it cost him the rest of his life. His sin cost him. His children turned against him. He had family trouble galore for the rest of his life. One of his children tried to kill him. And uh, it broke his heart all the rest of his life. So you say, well, I can sin with immunity. No, 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 no. And will God forgive you? Absolutely will forgive you. But you know, if you're in sin and get your leg caught off, well, you know what? You'll, you'll, be, uh, you'll go through the rest of your life with one leg. And if you sin and get your arm cut off, well, you'll go through the rest of your life with one arm. How many hear what I'm saying? Or if you sin in some way, then there are sometimes natural repercussions to sin. That's the reason we as believers need to steer clear of it. Yes or no? It's a big story. So uh, David's prayer of repentance, once uh, Nathan said that, one thing that, that God appreciated about David was his heart. And none of us are without sin, and none of us are immune from missing the mark. Hopefully none of us the rest of our lives will ever sin. But if you do, there's an antidote, and it's called repentance. How many hear me? Turn in your Bible. I want you to follow me in Psalm 51. I've got, I'll have it on the screen. I'm just going to go through Psalm 51. I've taken this psalm over the years, and I have just talked to so many people in private. I've had people come into my office. I've met with people in various places. And, and I mean, their chin is hitting the ground, and they have done something they never thought they would ever do. That's why, you know what, when somebody misses the mark and sins in some way, maybe one of your friends or maybe it's a co-worker or maybe it's a family member, don't get a haughty attitude and say, why did you do that? No, you that are, you that are, um, that you that are spiritual, restore the person that has fallen and, and be aware that you could be involved in the same thing, right? Right? And so anytime anybody has ever come to me, I've, I've wept with them. And I've gotten down sometimes on my knees with him on the floor. And I've, I've, I've gotten Psalm 51 off and said, let's just go to David's prayer of repentance. David, David committed adultery and then premeditated murder, y'all. I mean, it doesn't get much lower than that. Lust, adultery, premeditated murder, and hid the whole thing. I mean, it was a political mess in Israel. And he was, he was completely responsible. Once David, once Nathan pointed his finger at him and said, you're the man, then David did repent from his heart. And this is David's prayer of repentance. God heard his prayer again. And, um, and David's, David's family will be on the throne of the kingdom of God for eternity. That's the thing I want you to see. Uh, sin doesn't mean life is over. Sin means life may be challenging in some ways for the rest of your life. But how many know God does forgive sin? So I want to give you hope. If you ever miss the mark, go to Psalm 51. So here it is. Number one, so I've got, um, I've got I think I have eight, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I've got ten things here about repentance from Psalm 51. Let's go through all ten. Number one, ask God and, ask and expect God to pour out his mercy on you. And that's what David did. Look at verse 1, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. 
Blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Notice he kept saying my sin. My sin. It's not somebody else's sin. It's my sin. And here's the one thing you need to understand about God. Some people, I have talked to people throughout the years I've been in ministry since 1981. And some people have the idea because judgment doesn't fall immediately, what I'm doing must be okay. And I've, you know, I've had people in adultery and all kinds of, of mischief. And they think, well, nothing bad's happened yet. In fact, my boss gave me a raise. In fact, I'm doing better than I've ever done. In fact, you know what? I've got more contracts than I've ever gotten. And they think, that must be a sign that even though I'm in sin, God still loves me and God still blesses me. No, no, you know what it's a sign of? God has a boatload of mercy for everybody. And if, and if judgment is delayed, it's only because God's given you a space for mercy, a space for repentance. Psalm 145, Psalm 145 verse 8, the Lord is merciful, compassionate, slow to get angry. Everybody say, slow to get angry. I've meditated on that a lot. God is slow to get angry. Aren't you glad? And filled with unfailing love. Another psalm says it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Great is your faithfulness. Understand that God has a lot of mercy for all of us. And God will give you a time and a space to repent. So if and when you ever miss the mark, you know, God gives you a space to repent, clean it up, Get it right. If you don't repent, then sometimes we open the door for the enemy and he can come in and steal, kill, and destroy. And that's not nice. How many hear me? So they ask God to expect God to pour out his mercy on you. Ask and expect it. Number two, own what you've done. If you miss the mark, do what David did. Own what you've done. Verse three, David said, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. He called it again, my rebellion. And he knew that he did what was wrong. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because his flesh got in the way of his spiritual life. And uh, he had to own what he did. Um, again, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, that's repentance, then they'll have mercy. Is that good news or not? Number three, admit that you've offended God with what you've done. In fact, admit that you've broken God's laws. And I, I, my mind goes back, when I think about this, goes back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve and their sin. In Genesis, uh, when God came to Adam, said, Adam, where are you? And you know the first thing Adam says? Well, that woman gave me, that woman, that woman gave me something. He blamed the woman. And then he came to Eve and said, Eve? And, and Eve said, well, that serpent that you created, you know, he's crawling on the ground. And, uh, and he told me to do something. And David, that's not David's response. David owned what he did admit that you've offended God with what you've done verse 4 against you you David said you alone have I sinned I have done what is evil in your, in, in uh, your sight number 4 admit that God was not at fault for what you've done so all of this 3 and 4 kind of go together in fact in the book of Genesis Adam uh, in fact just the way it's it's it's, uh, it's, it's written in the book of Genesis when God came up to Adam after he had sinned. Adam said to God, God said, Adam, did you eat that fruit that I told you not to eat? And here's what Adam said. Well, well God, that woman you gave me. He put the blame on God. Well, God, if you hadn't created that woman, maybe I wouldn't have messed up. How many know Adam did the, said the wrong thing? David didn't do that. He owned what he get, did. Against you, 
You alone have I sinned. I have done this evil in your sight. In fact, admit that God is not at fault, number four, for what you've done. Uh, You will be proved right, uh, the latter part of verse four, in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. God, I can't blame you. I can't blame anybody else. How many know if you want out of your problems, it's time to fess up my own responsibility? You know, if you got a problem on the job, if you got a problem in your family, if you got a problem in your marriage, stop blaming your wife, stop blaming your husband, stop blaming your children, stop blaming circumstances, blame yourself. I have found in my own life, if I've got a problem, if I'll say, if I'll say, it's me, it's me. In fact, with my staff team, I've many times had to say, it's me. I've had problems with my children before. I've got on my knees in my children's bedrooms and said, Daddy was wrong. I've had to go to Susan and say, Susan, I am wrong. You know, when you own what you do, you can get beyond it. But if you never own it, you'll just sit right there without changing. How many hear me? And we've got a whole generation today. We feel so badly about ourselves that we're not willing to own who we are and what we've done. And, my, and the Word says that my experience in life says that if you do something wrong, the best thing you can do is just be upfront about it, say what it is, say what you've done, and say I'm really, really sorry to whoever you did it to, and then go to God like David did. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You're, you're right, I'm wrong, and that's the way it is. Number five, admit that you're Not right without God's help. And that's what David said. He said, God, it's not your fault. He didn't do what Adam did. Adam said, God, that woman, she's the one that caused me. No, no, no. That's not what what David said. David said, verse 5, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. That's one of the major doctrines of Scripture, and that is the depravity of man. All of us are sinners from the time we're born. The nature of sin is in the human frame. Now, let me say this. If you've got young babies, and uh, I believe this, and many, many denominations teach this, and I believe the Bible bears this out, God doesn't hold a child responsible for its sins until it knows the difference between right and wrong. How many heard what I just said? Uh, Romans 7 verse 9. I was with, alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So here's what the scriptures seem to indicate. We're born in sin. That's what verse 5 says. I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. In the womb before you're born, you're born of a sinful human family. But we're not responsible for that until the age that we know the difference between right and wrong. People call that the age of accountability. That that is, you become accountable for what you do. And when you know the difference between right and wrong and you choose the wrong and shun the right, then you become responsible. How many hear me? So I think when we get to heaven, all these 60 million little babies... Or maybe it's 63 million, I think, the late, that have been aborted by women in the United States since 1973. There'll be a lot of children that have grown up in heaven outside of their bodies. Because, and, but they were sinners when they were born, but God doesn't hold them accountable. Aren't you glad that God has a boatload of mercy for the human race? Huh? But once you know the difference between right and wrong like David did, 
You're completely, absolutely responsible. Verse 6, David said, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Number 6, ask God to forgive you and cleanse you. David owned his sin. He didn't blame God. He was utterly responsible. Then he said in verse 7, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Then we have so many scriptures, Old and New Testament, that promise us that if we're honest with God, he forgives and cleanses sin. Now listen, if you've got a personality like mine, I have an obsessive mind. And I think on things. Oh, you all ever do that? Over and over and over and over, you know, infinitum. And so for me, when I first came to the Lord, my biggest challenge was condemnation and guilt. Because I was in drugs and all this mess as a teenager. And then when I came to the Lord, all that came looming before me. And I would hear these taunting thoughts. Who do you think you are? Remember where you've been. Remember what you've done. Remember what you said. And then thought association happens in a millisecond. I'm driving through my little city, Florence, South Carolina, where I was raised. And, and this happened there. And I had this happen there. Met this person here. We did that over there. And my mind's reminded me of constantly of all these little things I did. And then songs would come on the radio. Remember where you were when that song was playing? I said, oh, dude, I don't want to remember that. And I was full of condemnation. And y'all, these verses that I'm about to read, they set me free as, as a believer from condemnation before God because of my obsessive mind. So if you have a problem rethinking and rehashing where you've been, what you did, maybe you sinned last week. Maybe you sinned last month. Maybe you sinned last year and you're still thinking about it. Get over it. Repent. And then grab a hold of what God says. 1 John 1, 9 is really clear. If we confess our sins... That word confess means to agree with, to say the same thing that God says about something. If we confess our sins, you do one thing, I say God does four things. He'll be faithful to you, just to you, forgive your sins, cleanse you from unrighteousness. That's the aggression of the love of God towards us. We do one thing. You're honest with God. Confess your sin. Do what David did. It's not anybody else. I'm completely at fault. I did it myself. God will be faithful, just forgive you and cleanse you. You can't beat that, right? Then 1 John 2, 1 and 2, my dear children, John said, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer, literally, who pleads our case before the Father, and he's never lost a court case with God. He is Jesus Christ, the only the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's anger against sin is appeased because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And when we as believers sin, when we confess our sin, God is satisfied with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and his blood that was shed to cleanse our sins. And we confess our sins to God, they're done, and they never were. Hebrews 10, 17, then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. When you confess your sin, it's not even past history because history can be remembered. It's as though you never did it. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you start traveling east, you'll be traveling east infinitum. In eternity, in perpetuity, you'll never be, it's always east. I mean, that's the way, as far as, that's an incalculable distance as far as the east is from the west. That's how far God moves our sins 
from us. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember your sins. Is that good? So if God doesn't remember our sins as believers and we've confessed them, what are we doing remembering them? Right? I mean, why? Then I love this, Micah 7, 19. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Corey Ten Boone took that verse uh, and said, don't go fishing for him. When God, can, God forgives your sin, do what God does. Act as though you never did it because that's what God does. How many hear what I'm saying? Cast your sins into the depths of the sea. I mean, the ocean's almost seven miles deep in some locations worldwide. That's a long, that, that means you can't go down there and dig them back up and just stop trying. How many hear me? So if you're like me and you've got an obsessive mind, you have to come to the point that you say out loud, Father, I confessed my sin. I'm remorseful about it. I owned what I did. I confess what I did like David did. And you know what? I thank you for forgiving me. And the last person to forgive you normally is you. And that's where you got to go back over. Get these scriptures. I've got them in the notes. Go over them again and again and again. Number seven, ask God to restore your joy. The first thing happens that when we're honest with God, we repent of sin. We're honest with ourselves is God restores our joy. Verse eight, oh, give me back my joy again, David said. Um, you have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. So God restores joy. He said, God restore my joy. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. God wants to give us joy again. Verse number eight, ask God to place a desire in you to do what is right. That's what David prayed in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Can't you imagine David in his mind's eye kept rehashing going up on that, going up on that flat rooftop and seeing Bathsheba bringing her to his, uh, his palace and then having relations with her, getting her pregnant, then having her husband. Don't you know his mind went over that over and over again? Don't you know the enemy kept taunting him? You're such a bad person. There is no redemption for you. Look what you have done. And so David prayed, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Now that's a good prayer. If you have an area of life that you're, you're, you're liable to fall in, if there's a sin that Hebrews 12 says so easily hinders your life, there's one area for you, it's a different thing for different people. You know, it might be gossip, it might be slander, it could be unforgiveness, it could be words, it could be a physical habit, whatever it is that you find yourself falling into over and over again and having to pray David's prayer of repentance saying, God, I don't want this. Then pray this too, Lord, create in me a desire to not do this anymore. Created me a clean heart. He was saying, God, help me to never do this again. Help me to think not, never to think so much of me and so less of you that I think I can live life without you. Created me desire to live right, to do right, to be right. How many hear me? Whatever's in your life, you say, God, you know I've done this. I'm ashamed of it. I'm sorry for it. I ask forgiveness for it. Father, created me a desire never to go back there again. How many hear me? Create in me a clean heart. 
Number nine, commit to leaving your sin and living right. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He prays again and make me willing to obey you. Then I'll teach your ways to rebels and then uh, they will return to you. Forgive me for the shedding for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I'll joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Commit to leaving your sin and then living right. And I can't encourage you. If you want to leave your sin, once you've repented, once you've owned it, once you've confessed the sin, once you've asked God to create a clean heart in you, you got to take another step. If all you do is stay self-absorbed, oh my, I got I to gotta be careful. I can't do this again. Get your eyes off of you and put your eyes on other people. How many hear me? So here, if you're at Victory Church, get involved in our small groups. In groups, how many know in groups there's safety? And when you're having a hard time, you'll find out other people are having a hard time too. When you have challenges, if you get involved with other people and fellowship with them, you find out nobody's, nobody's unusual, everybody's the same. Every one of us have to deal with the same kinds of temptations and tests that everybody else does. Is it true? Get involved in a small group. Get involved in fellowship. If we isolate, we can easily get into trouble. And it's isolated people often that fall into sin more than those that don't. David was by himself in his palace. If he had been with his men, maybe he wouldn't have been as tempted as he was. Do you think? So get involved in small groups and or get involved in our dream team, our volunteer team like Josiah I mentioned earlier. Get involved in helping someone else's life. Ever since I've known the Lord, I had an obsessive mind when I came to the Lord. I was 18 and always thinking about where, when, why, how, all my past life. But you know, God had me put my hand, so to speak, to do something, and he, he forced my hand almost, not really, but he said, Mitch, I want you to get involved in helping other people. So all my life, I volunteered to do things at my church, volunteered to help people in some way. Here's the deal. If you get involved with helping others, you take your eyes off you. And when you take your eyes off of you, then you're not quite as important because God so loved the world. He loves me, but he loves the world. So if I keep my eyes on Jesus and keep my eyes on helping others, you know what? It goes a long way towards me living a lifestyle of repentance, leaving the problem I've had, overcoming, living a different way. Number 10, lastly, humble yourself before the Lord. David said this in verse 16, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. He said the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Is that good? Now, see, I've taken that in my life. I don't know about you, but, you know, I've had to wrestle with pride in my life. I think maybe it's a Horton thing. I don't know. But I've always thought I was real prideful. I mean, as a young, I've always wanted somebody to think I'm really something, you know, as a kid. And, uh, you know, um, and so ever since I've known the Lord, the, the scriptures about pride have really, have really grabbed my heart. In fact, Isaiah um, 57, 15. I even, <clears throat> thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is of a humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble. To revive the heart of the contrite ones. I grabbed that when I was 18 years old. And you've heard me say this. And I, I did it this morning when I pray by myself. You should all, don't just pray on the run. Just don't pray. I know you need to pray when you drive on 440 and 40. I know that. But don't just pray when you're driving. 
get off by yourself. And if you'll just spend some time with God alone where it's quiet. When I do that, I did it this morning. My favorite little chair. I kneel down. I kneel down. And when I kneel down, I, I first thing I say, Father, I humble myself to you. You know, when you do that, it reminds you that you don't have any strength without his. You don't have any ability without his. You don't have any life without out him giving you the breath of life. You don't have a heartbeat without him continuing yours. How many hear me? You live in sync with him. He's the bigger, you're the lesser. And when you keep that in perspective, it's hard to get really haughty for very long. So David did that. He said, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. A person who makes excuses for life is a very prideful person. You know what? At sooner or later, if you're a person that never owns what you do, it's always somebody else's fault. And I've seen these kinds of people all my life, and we have a boatload of them in America today. I've never seen a person prosper very long that didn't own their mistakes and humble themselves in some way. How many hear me? David did that, although he sinned when he humbled himself. God exalted him. And God actually said of David, there will, God made a covenant with David and said, from your family, for eternity, there will be some, somebody sitting on the throne in the kingdom of heaven. And how many know Jesus is a descendant of King David?